Okay, there we go. We're back here on the Jiggy Jaguar show with Chris Dean. Chris, how you doing this afternoon? Evening, oh, morning, I don't know what it is out there right now. Oh, it's just past lunchtime, James. There you go. It'll work. Uh, what's your website, by the way, for people to go check that out? Uh, the website, you can find me at www.christopherdean.info. Wow. What do you got available on the website for people to, uh, when they go there, what can they expect to find? Well, you can listen to uh, selections from all three of my albums. Uh, about nice. About a minute sound bite from, uh, from each selection on each album. Yeah. And photo uh, collage, as well as uh, my performance schedule running all the way through 2008. Wow. <laughs> you book your own uh, shows, or do you have somebody that helps you with that? Or uh, I, I used management and agents for a while, and then I found out that, uh, that I could be a little bit more successful doing it myself. Yeah. Well, that's cool. How, how did you uh, get started in the music business? Uh, my grandfather. Wow. Uh, actually, when I was five years old, uh, we were on holiday visiting down in Los Angeles. And, yeah. Uh, uh, he pulled out his guitar and he played uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky. And I made the comment, evidently, that, uh, hey, Grandpa, teach me how to do that. And he did, and I could. And wow. so I started playing when I was about five. You play any other instruments, or is that the only one? Uh, yeah, I played violin for a couple of years. Yeah. And uh, that was in elementary school. And then uh, at the same time, I was still playing around with guitar a little bit. And then I became more serious uh, at playing guitar as soon as I recognized that girls were on the planet. <laughs> and they like guitar players. So uh, as soon as I found out girls like guitar players, uh, I got serious about playing the guitar, and then within a couple of years, I was doing the normal garage band thing. Yeah? How many and bands then, were you involved with? Oh, gosh. Uh, when I was in high school, probably about four. And then uh, when I was 18, I moved to Tucson, Arizona. And uh, within the first five days I was there, I joined the musicians' union. And within the first seven days, I was working with a group called the Night Sound. And I was with them for two years. They were... Um, a rock and blues band. This was back in the 50s. Yeah. And uh, a touring band. And a couple of records out. We opened uh, for the Rascals and opened for the Doors. Man. Christopher, Jean, Christopher, Christopher Dean joining us on the program. Well, where can people, uh, besides your website, access your music on the Internet? Do you have like an Artist Direct page or MySpace or any of that? Oh, they can... Uh, there's actually about 47 retailers on the Internet that are handling my music. Wow. Uh, a good spot is CD Baby, yeah. uh, Guitar 9, and then as far as the digital downloads are concerned, iTunes. Man, you've got... Uh, there's a MSN Music. There's a full list on the CDs page uh, on my website. Yeah. And then my music is also available through retail outlets in the United States, about 2,208 stores. Nice. For the people that aren't familiar with uh, your background and your music, how many uh, CDs have you put out? Uh, we just released the third CD, January 16th. Yeah. Which wow. is my third uh, solo album. Yeah. How, how long did it take to get that uh, the third one put together? Well, we started. Uh, I started working with Brian Bain, uh, who's another artist and also owns a studio here in the, in the San Diego area back in August, and we finished uh, tracking uh, in December. Wow. So, uh, so I, was, I was in and out of town on tour, so what we yeah. would do is uh, I'd go in and we would lay a lot of, uh, of my tracks, the guitar tracks, yeah. down. Nice. <clears throat> and well. then uh, I'd leave on tour and yeah. trust Brian totally. So I'd let him, he'd go ahead and do the editing. He would write the arrangements for the additional instruments. And uh, I'd come back, and there would be a, a rough mix. And then we would uh, go over that and uh, make some fine adjustments. And so it took a little bit of time to get exactly what we were looking for. Yeah. Um, how many places do you, do you play? A week, month? Uh, last, uh, last year, 
2005, I did a little over 180 shows. Wow. <laughs> Dang. So you, you're all over the place. Well, primarily right now just uh, in the western United States. I do a lot of work in Arizona and then uh, up and down the coast of California. Yeah. Wow. Well, at least you're, uh, you're keeping busy. That, there's a lot of musicians that I talk to that they're just, they play every once in a while. They're not out there sharpening their skills, as it were, for uh, a long duration of time. That's cool. Well, actually, uh, James, it's my wife. She's got a long whip. <laughs> and she reminds me that the mortgage payment has to be made every month. There you go. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, don't you think it's time for you to go back out on tour? <laughs> And so there's uh, quite a bit of inspiration in that. That in the bank, you know, yeah. the, the mortgage payments got to get made every month. Oh, yeah. But, uh, I totally love what I do. Well, there you go. Do you typically, uh, when you play shows, do you have, uh, you just play shows, or do you have anybody, you know, open for you? Or? Uh, I have in the past had, had opening acts, but uh, the highest percentage of what I do is just uh, uh, I'm a headliner, and there are no other apps. Yeah. Do you uh, give people opportunity to buy uh, your CDs and stuff at your shows? Or? Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> something else my wife won't let me forget to take with me when I go out. <laughs> take the CDs. The dog needs milk bones. There you go. Do you primarily make uh, more money selling the uh, CDs on the website and move more product, or do you make more at your live shows? Uh, when you talk, when you start talking about uh, margin on the CDs, uh, the best thing for me to do, uh, if I want to make the best profit, is to sell at at the shows. Yeah. Uh, because through the distribution chain, uh, whether it's through Super D, which supplies to the uh, to the stores, or whether it's CD Baby or Guitar Nine, uh, when you're dealing with physical products, uh, they're they're taking a percentage of the gross revenue. Yeah. So that leaves me with a little bit smaller net. Um, when I'm out at the shows, I can make the best uh, best profit on the merchandise. Well, that's cool. So um, you've ever had any embarrassing moments on stage, or does that never, are you such a professional that never happens? Oh, I, uh, <laughs> you just reminded me of... Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't like that laugh. Something's coming. <laughs> I was uh, in, in the latter part of February and the first part of March. I was out on a on a 23 show, 23 city tour, and one of the little communities I was in was a place called Elk Grove, which is just south uh, of Sacramento. Yeah. And uh, one of the tunes that I do requires uh, kind of a flamenco strumming with my right hand. Yeah. And uh, and I it's a it's a great little Irish tune called "Wish I Were Back Home in Derry." <laughs> and the uh, the melody is actually the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald yeah. uh, that was written by Gordon Lightfoot from nice. I guess about thirty years ago. Um, I was strumming vigorously, <laughs> and uh, then I saw something fly off the uh, guitar. Oh no! And then I wasn't uh, able to strum quite as vigorously as I had been, <laughs> and it was my. The fingernail off my ring finger. Oh my God! My hand, and uh, I have <laughs> long fingernails, and I don't use the acrylic, so I actually use my own nails. Yeah. And so this left me somewhat perplexed because I didn't have enough nail to grab a string with, and we were only about ten to fifteen minutes into the show. Oh my God! How, how did you figure that out? Uh, I requested. <laughs> guitar you request the fingernail. <laughs> Guitar players, pay close attention to this. I asked if anybody had a tube of super glue. Yeah. And uh, this gal had a tube of super glue in her purse. And I was able to locate my nail about five feet from where I was sitting. And <laughs> I put a little super glue uh, on it and stuck it back on. And I was literally uh, able to start performing again within just a couple of minutes. Wow. With, uh, with no problem. And. This was only the second of four tours, yeah. so the nail had been broken so short that it wasn't going to have time to grow back uh, with all the shows that I had to do. 
uh, and it lasted almost uh, through 46 shows. Dang. That's, that's uh, that impressive. Somewhere, somewhere between Palm Springs and yeah. uh, Quartzsite, Arizona, on my way from Central California to a show over in Phoenix, <laughs> uh, it fell off. And I'll tell you, James, I turned the, the inside of that rental car upside down <laughs> looking for that fingernail. Oh I had God. super glue with me, but it was gone. Wow. That's that's crazy. That that is that is quite an embarrassing moment. And an added little bonus at the end. That is that is that is something, I'll tell you. Christopher Dean joining us on the program. Uh you've got your third C D out. For for people who are interested in picking that up, what's the title of that? Uh, the latest CD is Celtic Journey, and it's an album of instrumental uh, Scottish, Irish, and English traditional and contemporary folk music. Yeah. Wow. So you've uh, have you played in front of any uh, any acts that people would know from the mainstream? Have you been playing at a, at a club or something one night and somebody walked in? You're like, hey, I know that guy. Uh, I was doing a, a show up in in uh, Placerville. Yeah. And Dan Crary walked in. Wow. Um, for those of you that may not be familiar with Dan Crary, he's one of the more prolific bluegrass flat pickers yeah. in this country. He's also a Taylor Guitars clinician. Wow. Uh, and he's also working with Men of Steel. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're doing shows in Europe, Canada, and the United States. That's cool. But uh, it was expected. Dan and I have been friends for years, so we're yeah. going to go out and have dinner after the show. Wow. But it's still, uh, it's still a little bit unnerving when, you know, one of your icons walks in and you're oh, yeah. performing. It's, uh, it, it can be a little unnerving. <laughs> oh, I would, I would say that that seems to be, uh, seems to be a situation, but at least you're a professional and it didn't throw you off your game. No, as a matter of fact, uh, as soon as he walked in and I saw him there, I went through a, one or two tunes, and then I did my best to embarrass him. <laughs> How did you By do that? Saying, you know, this is one of the finest flat-picked bluegrass guitarists in this country. Oh, yeah. He's and renowned. up and, and get recognized. So I kind of put it back <laughs> put it back in his ball, ballpark. <laughs> but I do think extremely highly of the man. Not only is he one of the most skilled flat-pick guitarists I've ever run across. But uh, uh, ethically, and, and uh, very very nice man, very well-educated, uh, yeah. very honest, principled, uh, ethical. Yeah. Which is kind of an anomaly in the music business. Oh, yeah. It's so few, far between. It's uh, it's amazing, you know, a guy like that comes along. It's, it's you know, interesting. Somebody to somebody to really cherish and hold on to. Where does your uh, musical influences come from? Well, you know, we can go back, James, to uh, to when I first started playing. Obviously, it would have been my grandfather yeah. because he was the first one that introduced me to the instrument. But then, uh, like most most young guys, I was interested in rock and roll uh, at that point in stage uh, in my life, and so I was listening to. Oh, Dwayne Eddy, uh, yeah. folks like that. Up until a point when I turned about 11 or 12, and then a friend of mine, Jerry Ashford, who was still yeah. uh, performing, lives up in, uh, in uh, Oregon State now. Uh, Jerry asked me one day, he said, did you ever hear Chet Atkins? And I said, no, no, I don't know who you're talking about. He said, come with me. And we, we put on a couple of his albums, and that literally changed the way I played guitar. And just turned everything uh, right around for it. I had been a flat picker. And uh, when I heard this guy doing rhythm bass and lead notes all at the same time yeah. on one guitar, uh, I was just thrilled with the opportunities that that presented. Wow. So that was the first person that really changed me uh, and, and really had an influence. Uh, if we were to, to go into current times, yeah. I would have to say that uh, because I'm a Celtic artist, I do the Scottish and Irish music, probably one of the most gifted guitarists I've ever heard in this genre of music is Tony McManus from Scotland. He's now living up in Canada. Yeah. 
a major influence there. Uh, as far as flat picking is concerned, uh, which I integrate both finger picking and flat picking in my shows, I'd have to go back again to Dan Crary. Yeah. Uh, he's been a tremendous influence. Well, um, I'll tell you, those, those are a lot of a lot of good names that you uh, you mentioned there. Well, there's so many uh, gifted, talented guitarists out there that uh, there's a fellow from San Diego, D.R. Otten, yeah. who is, <clears throat> without a doubt, probably one of the finest guitar players I've ever heard. Uh, he's influenced me. Uh, there's Edgar Cruz out of Oklahoma City. Pat Kirtley, uh, who's another Taylor clinician uh, yeah. out of Bardstown, Kentucky. Uh, all these people have had some degree of influence on me at one point or another. Wow, that is that's interesting. I'm 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 blown away by just some of the the names that that you've mentioned. Uh, what's what's the top reason you want to play music? Well, you know this. I think this goes back to when I was a child. I wasn't. Uh, I really wasn't uh, paying any attention to music yeah. up until a point in time when my, my grandfather put a guitar in my hand. But from that point forward and to this day, uh, the nucleus of me has been music. Everything I've done is, is evolved around music. Yeah. If I'm not playing it, I'm listening to it. Unfortunately, um, nice. I'm... I've been married to a woman for 28 years that's the same way. She loves music as well. <laughs> so we, there's music going all the time in our home, in our car, and it's kind of the nucleus of our life. Yeah. Well, that's that's nice. Any other members of your family, musicians, into music? Um, I've got a cousin that uh, that is an actor up in San Francisco, yeah. uh, Jim Dean. goes by the stage name of Charles Dean. Yeah. And he's a he's a gifted blues guitar player and singer. Wow. Um, but his uh, his main gig is acting. Yeah. Well, you and know. And then there was uncles and aunts and yeah, you know, folks like that that uh, that played around with it a little bit. But uh, as far as anybody that's other than Jim and myself, we're the only two in the family that have attempted to make a living out of it. Yeah. What's been the uh, local response to your music, or, or is there one? Do you have mostly, is it mostly Internet, or? Uh, no, I'm not sure I understood the question. Well, uh, do, do you have do you have a lot of people that that go to your shows based upon, they've, they've heard the CD, they've saw the CD, or do they just happen to, to wander in and, you know, see the show? How's the local response been? Well, uh I don't do a tremendous amount of shows locally. Yeah. Uh, most of the shows that I do are on the road. And oh, okay. There's advertising associated with that. And for the folks that aren't familiar with me, uh, I think what draws them is the Celtic music. Yeah. The, the Scottish and Irish music. There are, as odd as this may seem, James, there are very few Celtic guitarists. Yeah, there's, there's, there's not a lot around. Of, yeah, in the, in the States, uh, when you look at uh, artists that are, are recording, and their prime genre is Celtic music, you're probably looking at uh, maybe eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's very, very few that are around that are, uh, period, you know. Not, not not just oh you know there's few few that are decent no there's very few periods so it's nice every once in a while when uh one or two pop up here or there. Uh, so when you take a look at the nature of Celtic music, yeah, uh, the guitar itself didn't even surface uh, as an instrument in that genre until the 60s, and when it did surface in Scotland and Ireland and England, it surfaced as a uh, as a rhythm instrument. Yeah, a percussive rhythm instrument, uh, not meant to, to carry the lead. The lead was always carried with flutes, the fiddles, the pipes. Yeah. And then some of your innovators, like uh, Renborn, started uh, taking some of the Celtic tunes and arranging them with a fingerstyle guitar. Yeah. And 
from that, it just started to, to grow. But even today, uh, when you listen to oh, the Celtic, the large Celtic group, Kepa uh, Kelly from Scotland, for instance, oh yeah, uh, Yanta from Ireland. Uh, you may hear a guitar in there, but the guitar is in a position of doing rhythm work, syncopated rhythm work. Uh, Tannehill Weaver, same thing. Roy Galane uh, has got a tremendous right hand with the syncopation, and he works with the pipes and works with the fiddle, but it's not used as a lead instrument. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's been, a, it's been an amazing interview. Learned a lot. Learned a lot about you. Uh, definitely, I encourage a lot of people to go out and pick up the CD and check out the website. It has been uh, it's been fun, Chris. That's great. I've also uh, the ChristopherDean.info is just a, another way of getting into my website because it's, the actual name of it is Scottish and it's very difficult for people to remember, much less spell. <laughs> but it's CarryHill.com, which is our record label. Yeah, that's C A I R N. E Y H I L L dot com. Oh wow! Yeah, I can see why you're. <laughs> yeah, or the easiest way is go to your favorite search engine and just punch in my name, and uh, and the website will come up. Nice. In the first four or five. Well, that's cool. Well, I appreciate the interview. We'll definitely have to have you back on sometime. Really enjoyed it. James, I appreciate it. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. It's, it's been a pleasure uh, doing this. Do you suffer from depression? Well, you don't have to. Not anymore. Finally, a non-prescription medical breakthrough. It's the Jiggy Jaguar Show. JiggyJaguar.com We are back here on the Jiggy Jaguar Show, speaking with Dave Tate from Elite Fitness Systems. Uh, Dave, you've got a heck of a background in fitness. Why don't you uh, give our audience a look into it? First, I'd like to thank you for having the opportunity to do this interview. Oh, yeah. um, my background in fitness is a little unique in comparison to a lot of the other trainers and people in the industry. I began the sport of powerlifting at 13 years of age. Yeah. And actually did my first powerlifting competition when I was 14. Wow. Continued competing in powerlifting all the way up until basically just a couple of years ago. And through that time frame, obviously, I've had the opportunity to meet, you know, many of the best strength coaches, lifters, and trainers in the world, which yeah. has helped to shape, you know, my education oh, and yeah. our website. You've got a, a heck of a background. How, how, did, how did you take up powerlifting? Is it just was an interest to you, or did you play football? Or? I played football and I wrestled, but basically what it was is my – my father was good friends with uh, Chief of Narcotics in Finley, Ohio, who happened to be a part of a small private key club gym, yeah. which was um, set up mainly just for powerlifters and strength athletes. And I got a weight set for Christmas one year, and I just fell in love with that. So after about six months of doing that, he just he set it up with this guy so I could go on and train with them. And fortunately for me, I never... I never really had the same type of experience that a lot of kids have where you pick up muscle and fitness and you go do those programs and yeah. basically, you know, I, I had six months of really not knowing what I was doing like any other kid oh, yeah. would, and then I was on regimented cycle periodized programs from that point on, which helped, you know, propel me into the sport of powerlifting and everything else because yeah. I was very fortunate to have people around me that were a lot better and stronger than what I was, but also knew what they were doing. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you, uh, you developed the site EliteFTS.com. Uh, what can people expect when they go to the website? What, what basically what happened is years ago when I first got online, yeah. I started going out, I started reading some information in regards to maximum strength development. and. Yeah. I didn't like what I was finding, especially when it was in regards to the West Side Barbell training, which was part of the club that I was training with at the yeah. time. So I started emailing uh, one of the websites, which was beefsquatter.com, and he set up a very, very small Q&A type thing. And I started answering questions from people, and it, it grew to the point to where 
I took it to the next level and set up a Q&A on my website with the mission and the goal of trying to combine the three passions I had at the time, which was I worked as a personal trainer, yeah. I wanted to be a strength coach, and I was a power lifter. And over the years, I've seen that there's an immense knowledge between these three separate groups, but yet they were not networking with each other effectively. So I wanted to set up a Q&A where I could bring in the best of the best, which would be people that I've used as advisors in my network over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. So at this point, we got 21 people on our Q&A who are answering questions from you know, anything in regards to you know, general fitness all the way up to maximum strength development and strength and conditioning, yeah. as well as you know, articles and an online store, and we're one of the... We sell the, one of the, I believe, what is the highest quality level of strength training equipment that's on the market as well. I'll, I'll tell you, it seems like uh, there's there's more and more people uh, taking up powerlifting or getting back into powerlifting that used to do powerlifting. Uh, why do you think that seems to be a big boom? I don't know if it's so much that it's powerlifting, so to say. I think what what's happening is we are in a, I guess you could call it a gimmick age. Yeah. You know, where for the past 10 years, everybody has been going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and not realizing that everything's tools. These things could be kettlebells, they could be stability balls, they could be functional training, they could be balance training or whatnot. Yeah. And what seems to be happening, which is a shift that I'm seeing in the industry, is, you know, five years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, bodybuilding was like the big thing. Yeah. The general fitness population and everybody wanted to look, you know, get bigger and be jacked and all this other stuff. Now what people are kind of looking for from the general population is they want to look athletic. Yeah. You know, they want to look like, you know, an MMA fighter or oh, yeah. a, a football player or, you know, they want to look athletic. They, they no longer want to be and aspire to be like Dorian Yates or Lean Haney or yeah. Ronnie Coleman or anything like that, which is a good thing. Because of that, there's a little bit of a, a flux to where people really don't know how to train. <laughs> so from the general fitness perspective, they're latching on to training methods that are being done by some of these other sports, be it powerlifting, MMA, kickboxing, yeah. or whatever it is. They're seeking out their programs now and doing their, prob their programs. So what yeah. they're basically doing is they're looking for answers, but they're not asking the right questions. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, powerlifting and, and something else with powerlifting I've noticed, and we've had a few other powerlifters on the broadcast, that they go from doing powerlifting into strongman events. And it seems that the, the, the powerlifting guys are starting to dominate strongman. Have you ever uh, considered doing any type of training or anything? In, in, uh, in um, no, I leave that up to the strongman. <laughs> um, you know, what they do is absolutely amazing and astonishing yeah. to me. Um, you know, I basically I'm a powerlifter of blood. That's, that's what I did when I came into the sport. Yeah. Um, Certain circumstances and injuries have kind of retired me from the sport, but it's always going to be my passion. Um, I, I truly believe that, you know, powerlifting is the world's greatest sport and that everybody should do that. But at the same time, you need to understand that, you know, everybody's got different desires as well. So, yeah. you know, I can't get on my high horse and preach that everybody should be a lifter. <laughs> but I think everybody should definitely look into it because, you know, there's no other sport that can offer so much reward and pride at all different levels that's yeah. out there. Why do you think there's so little literature on the Internet for powerlifting in general? It's out there. It's just what powerlifting is, is it is a very, very small niche. Yeah. You know, from my research at best, you're looking at between 14,000 and 20,000 competitive lifters. Yeah. That's not a large number when you compare that to the number of people who just work out or to bodybuilding, so to say. So it's out there. I mean, there, there is the information that's out there. You just have to look for it. And I guess that's really the only real answer I have to that. You know, if there, if there were 
200,000 competitive lifters, you'd see obviously a lot more information out there because it would be a bigger industry and there would be more companies serving those industries. Yeah. Which is what it comes down to. Well, um, basic powerlifting questions we've had in the past uh, to some of our guests. Um, if I were to, let's say I've done weight training and I've been, you know, doing bodybuilding or whatever for, you know, various different sports, if I wanted to take up powerlifting, uh, how would I need to change my routine? The first thing that you have to do is, and I'm going to make a lot of assumptions here. Yeah. You know, I'm going to assume that you have a base level of GPP or general physical preparedness. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that you know the movements. Yeah. Because before anything else, technique is by far the most important oh, yeah. thing. You know, technique is going to actually be for the powerlifter. Your technique is a diagnostic tool yeah. to where if there's a technical breakdown, that's going to establish where your weak points are going to be and what needs to be trained to yeah. accommodate those weak points. Well, so to basically get started, I would say you have to, you have to learn the techniques. You know, you have to learn the movements, and you have to find a meet. Yeah. You know, you have to have a goal before anything else. And, you know, once you find that meet in Powerlifting USA, which is a magazine, it is by far the best place to go to find meets. They have a whole section in the back of it just on upcoming events. Once you find a meet, there's, there's many different methodologies that you can use to train for that meet. Where it's, I come from a very simplistic standpoint that if it is your first meet, just train, learn the movements, you know, figure out whatever type of equipment that you need to get yeah. to compete in the meet, be a squat suit, bench or whatever it is, and just go. You know, it doesn't, cool. the first time doesn't matter how you train to get there. Just train, do some singles from here to, you know, here and then, work on your technique, get out there, and establish a baseline. Yeah. When you get that baseline, which is going to be what your maxes are, and to me, what you do in the gym doesn't mean a single thing. Yeah. It's what you do in a competition because all three lifts need to be done on the same day. Yeah. Once you have that and you have a reference point. Oh, yeah. Then there's different ways to go about training for a meet. There's a series of articles that I've written that I posted on our website that I wrote for teenation.com. Um, one of them is called the Periodization Bible Part 2, and the other one's called the Eight Keys. The eight keys is about 50 pages of literature, which details exactly how you should train if you wanted to get involved into the sport of powerlifting. Yeah. It's, it's a rather expensive um, answer to yeah. fit into a, you know, a small 30-minute interview. But in short, you, I strongly believe you'd have to do some dynamic training. You'd have to do some max effort training, which is then cycle that out yeah. from the meat backwards. Well, I'll tell you. It's pretty like my general answer without getting too specific. Well, uh, Dave Tate joining us on the program. His website, EliteFTS.com. Uh, you've wrote some articles for Bodybuilding.com, which is just some some great stuff. Uh, I love training the bench press. That's a a great article because there's a lot of people that, and I've seen them in the gym. They they don't know what they're doing when it comes to bench press. They either hold their their hands way too wide on the bar, or they hold them way too close. There's not a happy medium. Uh, for for someone who basically you know just wanted they they weren't getting into powerlifting, they weren't getting into bodybuilding, they just want to do a basic bench press. What is the actual grip? that most people use when they when they do a bench press? I think the wider, you know, the wider the better because it's going to have a shorter range, but it all yeah. depends upon the structure of the lifter. You know, it's the key thing to keep in mind is that you want to keep your forearm vertical. Yeah. Okay, and from a technical standpoint, throughout the bench press, you want to keep the barbell in line with your forearm. Yeah. And you want to keep your wrist and elbow in line as well. So you don't have the barbell dumping forward in front of the elbow. Yeah. It's going to throw too much stress on the, on the deltoids. You don't want it shifting back to where your elbows are way in front of the bar 
going to shift too much stress on the tricep, which is otherwise known as an extend, a tricep extension in an extreme case. Yeah. But if it's somebody that's looking to increase their bench press, some real quick tips that I can give on that is if you do know what your max is, you want to train your bench press or train the bench press movement yeah. two times per week. On one of those sessions, you want to do what's called the dynamic effort method. With that method, you'll take between 50 to 60% of your one rep max yeah. after you warm up, and you'll do eight sets of three repetitions, taking about 45 to 60 seconds in between each set. Every set you do, you're going to want to change your grip, so you're using three different grips. Yeah. It can be a wide grip, it can be a neutral grip, and it can be a close grip. doesn't matter how you do them. I want to reiterate the fact that there's only eight sets because I have had people do 24 sets. Oh, wow. Um, after, and when you do this movement, because the weight and the percent is lighter, you want to press the bar as fast as you absolutely can. That's utilizing what's called the dynamic method, which is going to increase explosive strength. For you to press heavier weights, you need to move weights faster. Right? This is going to develop that ability for you to do that. Yeah. After you do your dynamic bench work, you want to follow it up with some tricep training, be it extensions, close grips. It, it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know that you want to train a little heavier for sets of five. Do some yoga work and some lat work, and call it a day. On the next training session, which will fall approximately 48 hours later, just say a few days later. Yeah. You're going to do what's called the max effort method. Now, on that method, you're not really going to use the actual bench press. You're going to use derivatives of the bench press. Yeah. That can be a floor press, a board press, a pin press. We have a lot of different exercises on our exercise index on our website that shows you how to do these. With this method, the max effort method, now we want to increase your overall strength. So on this, you're going to work up to a heavy single. So you're going to max out. Okay. This exercise will change every one to three weeks. For most of the listeners, it's going to change every three weeks because they're going to fall in the beginner to novice range. Yeah. It's more experience that will change every week. And then once you're done with that, you go on to tricep shoulders and lats again. If that is all they do, their bench press is going to go up tremendously because they've never trained these components before. They've just relied on one method of increasing muscle tension, which is the repetition method, yeah. which is bodybuilding work. That will increase muscle hypertrophy, but it's going to do nothing for the central nervous system as far as explosive strength, and it's not going to do anything to condition the muscular system to lift heavier weights. You have to utilize all three methods if you're developing a program for maximal strength development, which is what you're basically doing if you're trying to increase your bench press. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's that. That's a lot better than what I've what I've read and what I've seen people try and do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, a lot of this. I mean, we're kind of looking through this here, but like yeah. I said, on our site, there's a lot of articles detailing exactly how things should be set up. And the key to this, and really the key to any training, is going to be a term that's going to start popping up more and more and more throughout the future, and it's basically called auto regulation. Yeah. And if you want to take it back. It's basically, you know, instinctive training, which has been going around for years. You can't really live by a set program. You have to be able to make adjustments in your program during the week, during the month, during the day, and during the actual session. Because you may have certain things programmed, but then you're in the gym and it just doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. You know, so you have to condition your body to be what I call audible ready to be able to make those changes so you can continue to develop and advance in the program that you train. Well, it's a, uh, I'll tell you, just, just seeing uh, people do bench press and then squats, another issue. People, you know, <laughs> <laughs> people do not know what the hell they're doing when it comes to squats. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, uh, you can do it free weight. Or you can do it on a Smith machine, and I've heard a lot of people say, "Don't do it on a Smith machine because it's not an up and down movement." Where do you come down on that? Thing. I mean, here's the thing with training in general, and this this runs the gamut. This this runs. Yeah. I, I see the same mistake from advanced coaches all the way down to beginners. People basically spend more time, more effort, and more focus 
on perfecting the technique of a damn barbell curl <laughs> than they do a squat or a bench press. Yeah. And you know I'm right. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you can go into any gym and, yeah, you're going to see people that are cheating, swinging, you know, doing things oh, with yeah. the curls. <laughs> you know, 90% of the time you're seeing curls done with perfect form. Powerlifting 
it, pretty much it needs to be powerless, and you have to have some breaks, you know, just basically to free your mind, yeah. you know, from the sport. But for you, it's, it's very, very rare, and it's a very extremely rare individual that can dabble in both strongman and powerlifting or powerlifting and bodybuilding. Powerlifting and bodybuilding is even yeah. more difficult to dabble in than, say, strongman and powerlifting because of, you know, the dieting and the effect that it has on the system, where strongman is still extremely difficult to do both. You, you, you see it sometimes, but it's extremely rare because it's, it's a whole different game. It, it seems to be uh it just seems to be something that people are uh, starting to notice more and more like a cross brand kind of deal you know yeah. people you know like for instance uh I talked to somebody just recently and they pointed out that uh, Johnny Jackson you know used to do powerlifting and now he does bodybuilding yeah. so and Johnny was a hell of a lifter yeah you know, so I saw him compete in Columbus in the WPO qualifier, you know, I don't know how many years ago it was, but many years ago. And um, and he was a good lifter. Um, you know, he was not, um, for lack of a better word, I mean, he, he was not the champion of the event. Yeah. You know, you could tell by looking at him, he was more geared towards, for body, but I mean, Christ, the guy's, you know, sick as a brick. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable the fitness that this guy has. I mean, to look at him, he, he almost looked like an outcast among all these lifters. Yeah. And, you know, but when I, when I looked at him when he was competing, you know, I had questions in my mind, like, you know, his, his waist, for him to be an optimal squatter, to be squatting, you know, 1,000, 1,100 pounds like some of the guys in his weight class are doing nowadays, yeah. his waist is too small. And um, there's, there's, there's a structure and a physique that, is achieved with, and it's pretty much across the board with, with most of the lifters in a certain level. Um, that's not to say that there are exceptions to the rule. Yeah. Because there always are. But um, he, I think that he made, he made the right decision, plus he's going to make a hell of a lot more money. That too. Doing what he's doing now than if he was powerless. <laughs> but it's a good thing because what he's doing is he's bringing attention to the sport. Oh, yeah. And I think that's amazing, and I think that's great, because the more and more people that know about the sport, the better it is. Yeah. Well, um, something else that I've I've wondered on with uh, powerlifting and the crossover with bodybuilding and some of the other things, you and, and getting back to the strongman thing we were talking about earlier, um, you look at some of these guys, Marius Bujanovsky comes to mind. He's a mm-hmm. He's done powerlifting, he does the strongman now, but... He looks like a bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. How is that all diet? It, or how is he able to do that? You know, without, without, without knowing the training program, without knowing him, I really can't comment. Yeah. You know, on what he does. Like I said, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. Yeah. I mean, the guy is definitely built like a tank. Yeah. Um, and whatever his training is and whatever his regimen is, it's obviously working. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, he's, he's advanced at what he does. Yeah. And the it, it's motivating to see what he does, and it's encouraging to see what he does. But what a lot of people need to understand is if they're in one of those chosen sports, you know, you can't, you can't sit there and say, you know, if I'm going to do strongman, I want to look like him. Yeah. All right, because strongman is not about what you look like. It's yeah. about how well you compete in those events. Oh, yeah. And that goes back to the commitment and everything that I'm talking about. His physique and his structure is a side effect of the training that he does. And it's very apparent that the training that he does is geared towards strongman yeah. because he's extremely successful in that. So his training's not geared towards bodybuilding. You know, it's just an effect, it's a cause and effect yeah. of the training that he does, which is specific to his genetic type. Yeah, that, that seems to be because... You see a lot of these these strong men, that, and they don't have the definition that Pujanovsky has. Mm-hmm. So uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, and so that's does. the thing. Every once in a while, I've, I've read on message boards and things, people will point that out, and it's like, well, what they're doing, what the other guys are doing, you know, they're not doing it for the looks. They're doing it to get the job done. They're like you were saying. Well, I can pretty much guarantee either is he. 
Well, that's it. You know, you know, it's just, it's just everybody's got a different genetic makeup, and you know, I'm not going to say that what he is is because of genetics, because that's yeah. pure utter bullshit. Well, that's you know, Best interviews with new things added each week at JiggyJaguar.com. 